Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. We'll be looking at Psalm 51 this morning. And reading the entire psalm. It is an all-encompassing type of psalm. Acknowledging our own sinfulness, God's mercies, then our, our duty and our obligation. And not only our duty and obligation, but really a, a proper response to the mercies of God that He's shown to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let us take a look at Psalm 51. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version, by the way. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I brought forth, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with this, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken and rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For if you do not desire sacrifice, or else I will give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contract parts. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good, be your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer holes on your altar. You look at this passage in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, we see pretty much a summary, not only of our sinfulness, of our need for God's mercy, or because of our own sin and misery in which we were born, but also the deliverance. You see this in Christ. All this is fulfilled in Christ. And with thankful hearts, we are to go 
and want to speak forth the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to live in thankfulness to Him in our works, but also in our words. We are to proclaim, we are to praise. We can't praise Him in silence. We have to praise Him with our words. And as we gather together, we are united in this gospel. For our scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading from the epistle to the Romans, first chapter, first 17 verses. And we'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. For the message. Lord and Lord, this is God's inerrant, infallible word. Hear it. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God of power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called the saints, Grace to you, peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I may find away in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. That I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Oftentimes, beloved, we hear how the Lord is doing a mighty work in a far, far place, whereby human beings it would be difficult to get there. We as Christians either rejoice in what the Lord is doing in that faraway place, 
or because it's so, so far away, we tend to hear the news with a distant yawn. We might even respond to the news with a, that's nice, with little or no further thought. And yet there is much to rejoice in the salvation of others, no matter how far we are from us. There is much to be passionate about the Lord, about the Lord saving souls. There's much to rejoice. There's much to be passionate about in the Lord that ought to drive us who are in Christ to seek to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet it's not a, an emotional response to what Christ has accomplished for us and in us, as well as others. That's not the only thing that should be. It should solicit also a passion to, that drives an energy that comes out of a duty. A duty that is also driven by passion, passionate love for God and for others and pursuit of faith and power of Holy Spirit. As we look at the passage before us this morning in verses 8 through 15, we'll consider both of these driving forces, if you will, in the lack of those who belong to Christ and have come to Him in true faith and repentance of their sin. Beginning with verse 8, we see the Apostle Paul continuing with his prologue or introduction to his epistle with words of encouragement and thankfulness to the Lord for the saints in Rome, expressing a strong desire to go to them so that they may both be encouraged together by the mutual faith of them both. But the Apostle Paul had never been to Rome up to this point in his ministry, and yet his heartfelt desire to go to them was so strong that he sought the Lord in prayer to give him an opportunity to find a way to get there. Paul's passionate love for the saints in Rome was, was great, and it is that passion that we see in verses 8 through 13, where we find it expressed in his further prayer for them, that included an expression of thankfulness. His prayer for them was not just a one-shot deal. He didn't just pray for them once. But he says that he prayed for them without ceasing. As often as he prayed to the Lord, he would pray for them. The phrase without ceasing does not mean that his prayer for them was non-stop. It means that he prayed for them many, many times, going to the Lord often with, with prayer of thanksgiving for them and petitioning God to grant them an opportunity to go to Rome to see them. He gives thanks, first of all, to, to God through Jesus Christ for all of them. The Apostle understood the power of God in taking the gospel 
of Jesus Christ to a pagan people who lived in the midst of strong, ungodly influences. Rome was the center of the known world. It was a strong empire where the emperor ruled with fearsome power. In fact, emperor worship was demanded, and refusing to bow down before the king could mean certain death. Because of man's sin nature, sexual immorality, corruption, and larceny were the normal business and personal practices. Adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, and other forms of sexual immorality were seen as quote-unquote normal behavior. And so much different than today, is it? So because of man's hopeless state and helpless condition to overcome this ungodly mindset and influence, there was a strong reason for the Apostle Paul to give thanks to the Lord for the faith. He had heard that from the midst of all this ungodliness, God had called them out. By His grace, they were chosen from before the foundation of the world to live to Him godly lives to His glory, setting aside all that they grow up thinking was normal, forsaking unwholesome behavior, to live by faith and submission to Him, to the commandments of God, and thankfulness to Him, forsaking them from the condemnation of sin, and delivering them from the bondage to sin, in the darkness of their minds, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the washing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The saints in Rome were strong in the Lord, demonstrating His power, goodness, mercy, and grace to the world. It's this radical change in their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that caught the apostles' attention and drove them to give thanks to the Lord through Jesus Christ. The account of their faith spread like wildfire throughout the whole world, and it was this remarkable faith that stirred up the apostles' passion for the saints in Rome as he labored as a missionary in Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece and Turkey, in the western part of Turkey. This passion for the Roman saints not only led him to give thanks to God for them, it also drove him to make a very special petition to the Lord. He testified with an oath in verse 9 that he was fervently petitioning God to grant him his special request. And to reassure them that he did make this request, he, he, he makes an oath of affirmation. That what he was telling them is true. He makes this affirmation using God as his witness, knowing that he will answer to no higher judge than the one he serves with his spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle knows that the severity of God's judgment is so great that he would dare not speak the truth. So he swears an oath by no higher name than his beloved benevolent master. And Paul serves freely 
and willingness, with eager, eagerness and passion that cannot be shaken, since it is the desire that is a part of his most inward being that is his spirit, his heart, his soul. There are not many people that can say we can make this statement of affirmation when it comes to the purpose and frequency of your prayer, much less praying for others the way possible. Thus, don't you agree? I don't know. Because I'm one of those. All too often, they don't spend enough time praying for others. Truly, is with this reassuring oath, the apostle informs his readers that it is without ceasing that he also petitions God to open up an opportunity to go to them in Rome as he serves God in submission to his will. The apostle says at this point, verse 10, quote, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. There is a strong desire to see the saints in Rome. This desire is so strong, the apostle is searching for a way that as he labors in the will of God, that God's will will also be to go to, to them. We need to note here that, that he's not seeking his own way to get there, but rather he's seeking God's way to get there. His desire to see them was great, but it was not so strong that he sought to manipulate his circumstances to ensure that his desires were satisfied. He waited on God to work out his perfect will in getting him there. Up to this point, Paul had been providentially hindered from going to Rome. But the apostle would not have to wait much longer after writing this magnum opus of epistles before God sent him. The set in motion is a turn of the tree and gave Paul to Rome. However, it would not be under normal conditions that would take him there. God arranged a very special means to get them, get him to Rome safely. We're being changed under Roman guard. And you can read about that beginning in Acts chapter 21 and following. We stand back and we see how God worked out his will in Paul's life and getting him to Rome. And, and all we can do is marvel at the unfathomable things of God. Who would have imagined a better way to get the Apostle Paul to Rome safely? We need to keep in mind that he was a wanted man by the Jews. But our God is big. He always knows what is best, though we may not always understand it at the time. Something that we need to remember and keep in mind. While hearing the conversion of a pagan people might stir up words of thanks to the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean you and I would want to go to see them. So we might ask the question, what made the Apostle wants to see the saints in Rome. 
It had to be a desire put in his heart by God for a purpose. And it wasn't. It had to be a desire put in his heart by God. It was a desire that wasn't an emotional, empty passion. But rather it was a desire that had a twofold purpose. To establish them in the faith and then to labor alongside them to spread the gospel. We see that twofold purpose revealed in verses 11 through 13. First, he tells us in verse 11 that he longs to see them, to impart to them some spiritual gift so that they might be established. And what does that mean? We need to know first that this is not a prideful statement. On the contrary, it is a very humble statement. That is referring to a spiritual strengthening in general. It is not referring to the imparting of any specific charismatic gift, such as speaking in tongues or whatever power um, gift that it might be. He doesn't do that. That's only given by the Holy Spirit. And we see that, especially in the passive voice, in that phrase, that you may be established. The apostles are saying here that, that it is by God, through the preaching of the gospel, that is revealed in the Word. That's what imparts the gifts. We see the thought more clearly in one of his final words to the saints in Rome. In chapter 16 of this epistle, verse 25, he begins his benediction with, Now to him who is able to establish you. God is the one who establishes, who strengthens us as we use our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others in pointing one another to the Lord, looking to Him for wisdom from His Word and strength from the Holy Spirit, who gave us our spiritual gifts, given according to His purpose. Each one of us, for each one of us, in the benefit of the body of whole. Is it true? That as we preach and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, we are driven back to the word. As questions arise. Does this not also strengthen us in the faith? Further establishing and rooting our hearts in our, in our faith, our trust and confidence in God. Indeed it does. Being established in the faith means having such a firm foundation or having roots that are so deep that when the strong winds of adversity blow against you, that only the only thing that's lost will be the few dry leaves of sin and rebellion and death. When Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 17, we see the force of what he means. Beginning with verse 17, he, he prayed for the saints in Ephesus, quote, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height 
to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. The passion of the Apostle is clearly seen in these words as he expresses his desire that they are so deeply rooted in love that they might, like, un- that they might understand just how deep, how great a love God has for them through Christ Jesus our Lord, who dwells in their hearts through faith so that they might be filled with all the fullness of God, meaning to be unshakable in the faith. We are filled with the fullness of God. If we are filled with the fullness of God, we would be unshakable in the faith. Standing firm in Jesus Christ, who saved us, who also by the power of the Holy Spirit will keep us until the end, no matter what we may face in this life. Now going back to our text for a moment, we find in his humility is seen not only the fact that, that God is the one who establishes us through the preaching of the word, we also see his humility from verse 12 where he says, quote, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now Calvin is helpful uh, in, uh, helpful here uh, in our understanding of what is meant. He writes, quote, See to what degree of modesty his pious, that is referring to the apostle, his pious heart submitted itself so that he disdained not to seek confirmation from inexperienced beginners. In other words, he didn't look down upon those who are new in the faith to gain something from them. Going on with the quote. He means what he says. For there is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ who is not able to contribute something to our benefits. But we are hindered by our envy, by our pride, pride, from gathering such fruit from that life. Such is our high-mindedness. Such is the iniquity produced by vain reputation that despising and disregarding others, everyone thinks that he possesses what is abundantly sufficient for himself. Wow. What a, what a marvel. Beautiful is to have such a humble spirit. May the Lord grant that each one of us might have this kind of spirit for one another. The Apostle's passion was not driven by pride, as we have seen, but by a humble desire that he may, he may, that he may be encouraged as he and the saints in Rome labor together in truth. It's also produced. The second purpose behind his desire to see as we look at verse 13 of our text. But what is the fruit here that's talked about? It can be either one or two things. What could be both? Fruit here could be either the fruit mentioned in Galatians 5, 23, 23, the fruit of the Spirit, 
love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, meekness is gentleness, and self-control. Or it could be the fruit of souls coming to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. I don't take me wrong here. These are not mutually exclusive fruit. In fact, the first flows from the second. And both are fruit of the Holy Spirit. The outworking are evidence of the initial and ongoing washing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the redeemed sinner's heart. However, I believe the context is more favorable to the first understanding. Actually, to the second understanding. He says that the fruit being sought to be produced from among the saints in Rome is the same kind of fruit that the Apostle Paul had as he preached the gospel to, to other Gentiles. To those who were not under Jewish law, non-Jews. So I favor the fruit being of unbelievers being converted. Is what being is what being meant here. So we see Paul's passion for the saints and unbelievers in Rome as he prays without ceasing, petitioning the Lord to find a way in his will to see them. It is a passion with the ultimate desire to preach the gospel to not only the saints in Rome to further establish them in the faith, but also to preach the gospel to unbelievers in Rome together with them. Moreover, we see from verses 14 and 15 that it was not just the passion that was driving the apostle to preach to the believers and unbelievers in Rome. It was also a strong sense of duty or obligation. We read in verses 14 and 15, he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. This duty to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to both Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, is described as a quote-unquote debt. A debt that is owed to them. What does he mean by this? When you think of debt, you think of paying what is owed uh, to someone. So we see that the apostle is saying that he owes a debt to the unbelievers in Rome. But the question is, what did the Greeks, barbarians, the wise, the unwise, do for the apostle Paul that would now make him feel obligated? Do something for them. To go to them. To preach the gospel to them. The answer to that question is not so much that he owes it to the unbelievers directly, as though he was under obligation to them to repay them for something they did for him. That's a very different meaning. The apostle is describing himself as a debtor in the sense of being a bondservant to Jesus Christ. That he opens up his epistle, declaring that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And as a bondservant, he is under obligation to obey his master. 
which includes going out to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This he clearly stated in Acts 26, 15-18, when he stood before King Agrippa and gave an account of his conversion, telling King, the king that, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself sent him to the Gentiles to preach the gospel of Christ as a debtor to God. Now Romans 8, the first 17 verses, help give us a better sense of what it means to be a debtor as the apostle is using it in our text. We won't have time to read the whole passage this morning, but I want to focus in on verse 12. And if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, I'll read verse 12. It says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And to gain a better feel for the context that leads them to write, Therefore, in verse 12, let's quickly look at a few verses before. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. We see here that all who are in Christ by faith are debtors to the law of the Spirit, verse 2. That is, as sons of God, we serve our Savior under obligation as people delivered from the bondage of fear, verse 14. So our duty as debtors, as adopted children of God, is not out of fear, a fear of punishment, nor of forced duty. On the contrary, it is a duty from a thankful heart, from a love for Jesus Christ, who purchased us from the bondage to sin by his precious blood. This is the same type of debt that you would owe to someone who saved your life in some perilous and potentially fatal situation. Wouldn't you feel as though you would owe that person your life? that they came and they rescued you, even jumping, perhaps you were drowning and risking their own lives and trying to rescue you from drowning. Don't you have a sense of owing them something? Of course you do. Especially if they put their own life in peril to do so. How much more how much more so would the debt we owe to our Savior could actually die for us, to rescue us, to save us from eternal death? And praise God, He's also raised up again from the dead, having been satisfied the wrath of God against our sin, rescuing us from our well-deserved condemnation. You see, Jesus rescued us even though we deserve not to be rescued. He did it out of love for us. We owe him. We owe him big time. As they say. So when the apostle says he's a debtor, to unbelievers in verse 14 of our text, he is saying he's under obligation to them as he is led by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel to them. His duty is not a repayment of a debt, nor is it for the purpose of gaining God's favor, 
but rather as a servant of God under the law of the Spirit who leads him to preach to them the grace of God through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It was a duty that was done will, willingly, gratefully, and gladly from a heartfelt love for them by the Holy Spirit. A love that's implanted in him. That same love of God is implanted in each and every one of our hearts. And that will drive us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the apostle means when he says in verse 15, I am ready to preach the gospel. His readiness was because of his passion and his duty. It was not because he thought he had all the answers. Like you and me, he was a work in progress. He says so in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14. Beloved in Christ, you don't have to wait until you have all the answers to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to others around you. If you do, you'll never get there. You'll never witness Christ's gracious atonement work on the cross for sinners like you and me. You'll never do that. You'll never tell anybody. You'll never have all the answers. Let your passion and love for the Lord and others and your sense of duty, or better, your sense of debt to the Lord, be what drives you to witness Christ to others where you're at in the faith and you know what? You'll be pleasantly surprised at how much stronger you'll dwell in the faith when you do it. Remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. It is not the wise, it is not the noble, it is not the mighty that God calls. Remember that. When God called me into his kingdom, I was no one special. When God called me into the ministry, I was no one special. He called me where I'm at, or where I was. He calls sinners from every walk of life, from every nation, people, and tribe. He calls people like you and me. Lord and Lord, know that God will use any faithful servant to spread his gospel message, no matter how inadequate you may feel. That you may feel you are. In fact, didn't Paul declare who is sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2, 16 and 17. He says, Our sufficiency is from God, not from within us. It's not about us, it's about Him, it's about Jesus Christ. He makes it sufficient. He will use us where we're at. We just need to be faithful. Do not let fear quench your passion and subvert your duty to love. Your duty of love. If there is any fear of punishment involved in this duty, let it be the fear of knowing the terror of the Lord. 
toward those who are under the condemnation of the Lord, fearing the unbeliever's soul. Let that fear swallow up any fear you may have. So what can we take away from all this, from this passage that we consider this morning? The Lord and the Lord meditate on what we have learned considering who we are in Christ. Let the passion that the Apostle Paul had for others stir you up with a deep sense of devotion to the Lord and to one another. To care for other brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage one another, to seek to impart some spiritual gift given you by God to one another to strengthen and further establish our mutual faith in Christ from the Word. Does your passion run so deep that you love others with the kind of sacrificial love that God has shown you and spent sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you? Is this passion that ought to also drive you to witness the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers, knowing that without Christ they would be eternally lost, suffering the eternal torment of hell? Moreover, is your passion for others so great that you see yourself indebted to others, especially to unbelievers who proclaim the gospel to them? Yet so, as a debtor, let that sense of obligation be motivated from that same love God has shown us, the same unmerited, everlasting love, so that you will be able to say with the Apostle in verse 15 that you are ready to preach or witness Christ to unbelievers when the Lord gives you opportunities to do so in the glory of God. It is, for it is to Him alone belong glory, honor, wisdom, and power forever. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful for your many, many blessings. We deserve not even the least of them. Yet you, your blessings overflow to us. They are abounding for us. Lord, give us hearts filled with your love. Love for one another. Love for the lost. The lost sheep. Those who are your elect that are wandering still. Give us faithful hearts that we might reach out to the lost, no matter where they're at. We know that you can convert the heart of the, even the most evil of men. We can think of Manasseh or even the Apostle Paul. Men who were murderers and yet you converted them. Manasseh sacrificing his children. An evil man you converted him while he was in prison. Lord, you can do the impossible. <coughs> Lord, give us hearts filled with passion, love for one another. Give us a sense of duty, a debt, so that we might go, not a debt that we pay back begrudgingly, but more with cheerful hearts that we may go forth and reach out to the lost. 
not a real ass in the faith. Lord, let us use what you have given to us. Thank you. In whatever form it may be. Even with our tithes and our offerings. Lord, may you bless the use of them. To you, glory, in the fragrance of your the word and the spreading of the gospel. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen.